Okay, well, we are continuing on in the wonderful book of Genesis. Um, Genesis 21, so open up there, and we will pick up by overlapping with the verse we ended on last week. So we'll read 8 through, where are we going today? Through 21. Okay, Genesis 21, beginning in verse 8. Give careful attention now to the word of God. And the child, that is Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning. And took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." The word of the Lord. Again, our Lord and our God, we thank you for this word that you have inspired, that we may have knowledge concerning things of salvation and the way you created the world and what incredible grace is on display for us here. We thank you that you do not deal with us in our rebellion, in our our mockery now because of Christ, but you have lavished us with mercy and given us living water through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And amen. Well, the great Charles Spurgeon was one of the most powerful, productive, and energetic ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ in any of church history. His pulpit ministry impacted millions upon millions. He started orphanages and seminaries. So his being enshrined as the Prince of Preachers is certainly perhaps a fitting honorary title. However, Spurgeon was far from appreciated universally. He was not appreciated by all, and he knew what it was to face intense opposition. 
Specifically, during the final years of his ministry, when he noticed how modernism and how liberal theology was starting to encroach in and seep into the church, he started writing articles flagging these things and pointing directly at them with great warning. And, and this whole season of his ministry became known as, as the downgrade controversy that he was part of. And, and that name, the downgrade controversy, came from Spurgeon's metaphor as Scripture being a great mountain, the great pinnacle of a great mountain, you stand on and you take one foot off of the authority of Scripture and you are on a downgrade trajectory now of which it is unlikely that you will ever recover. That's hence downgrade controversy. And so he became an object of scorn. He became a thorn in the side of the Baptist Union where they ended up officially censuring him and then really pressuring him and forcing him to resign. And so if you're telling Spurgeon to resign, you're doing it wrong. And they were doing it wrong. Now, he didn't enjoy being censured. He didn't enjoy being slandered and mocked. And yet he refused to allow that to weaken his resolve or weaken his faithfulness to the word of God because he knew that it was part and parcel of the normal life for biblical Christians. And he knew that while the voice of his scoffers would ultimately die out when they died, God would vindicate his words even after he was gone. We see his thinking here in an exhortation that he gave to some pastoral trainees where he said to them, I do not look so much at what is to happen today, for these things relate to eternity, namely the proclamation of the word. For my part, I'm quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. I have dealt honestly before the living God. My brothers, do the same. He said, be willing to be eaten by dogs. That is, don't allow scoffers and mockers to intimidate you into a quiet corner. Now, why did he have to exhort the young pastors in this way? Well, it's because scoffing and mocking is a powerful, a powerful satanic tactic against the people of God. It is not fun to be reviled. It is not easy to endure mockery. It takes real resolve to stand strong for Christ in a cancel culture land. It takes real resolve to stand firm where even just saying, I believe what the Bible says, and meaning it gets you de facto tagged as a religious extremist. It is a burden that many cave to. Proverbs 27.3, a stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier. It's heavier than both. And the enemy knows this and has employed it to great effect, especially currently, in his desire to, to sap the impact of the proclamation of the gospel as many cower and cave beneath the weight of public scorn. And yet, this is not a new tactic of the enemy. There is nothing new under the sun. In fact, we even see this in our text today. For thousands a year ago, thousands, excuse me, thousands of years ago, 
at this very crucial moment in redemptive history, we see the enemy employing this type of oppression and pressure, as Paul will use to recount this in a bit. So remember the context. We finally have the birth of Isaac. The seed of promise has been born. The one through whom Messiah, the, the serpent crusher, will come. And so we know, we, we know that Isaac is going to face opposition from the enemy, as we highlighted a few weeks back. We must always remember that the fundamental battle undergirding every verse in Genesis and Scripture generally is the battle between the seed of the serpent on the prowl to destroy the seed of the woman. So Isaac is here now. How might we expect this first strike to come? How is he going to strike first? Perhaps he'll have a king come and physically threaten the life of baby, now toddler Isaac, like Pharaoh did in Exodus 1, just kill all the Hebrew babies, perhaps, or perhaps the threat to him will come by a famine in the land that threatens his existence, like Genesis 12, or like we'll see again at the end of Genesis. But in fact, it's not through either of these. The first snapping at Isaac comes through mockery. It comes through a scoffing voice reviling him in his own house. And you may have noticed that I, again, ended last week in verse 8 and also began today in verse 8, and that's for a reason. It's because verse 8 is, is a fitting ending to last week where we see the great joy that this child continued to bring to his family, and we talked about the eschatological joy that this Laughter Isaac would have for the people of God, and so it is fitting to end on a great feast. However, verse 8 is also an important hinge moment in chapter 21, and it was written here by Moses for a very specific reason, and it's to show that things are not all peaches and cream within the covenant household of Abraham. Rather, this feast not only highlighted Abraham's great joy, but it also highlighted a hostility that had sprung up in the house. And we see it in verse 9. During the feast, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And we've seen this tension before with Sarah and Hagar in Genesis 16, and it comes to a head again now. Now, one thing that I think is important to note, and that, and that we will see again in Galatians 4, is that Sarah's posture here, her posture is likely not righteous. She is disrespectful to her husband we know that she has already been harsh towards Hagar. She is embittered towards Hagar. Her posture was not righteous. However, her impulse was. Hagar's son, Ishmael, was at enmity with Isaac and could not remain in the house anymore. And there's two particular words in verse 9 within the text itself that, that clue us in to this hostility, to this enmity, namely the words Egyptian and laughing. So let's, let's consider those quickly. 
Throughout Scripture, Egypt represents oppression and bondage for the people of God. And, and so it's significant here that it doesn't say Ishmael to describe Ishmael. Rather, it calls him the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. So this is perhaps highlighting a conflict, a, an oppressive presence against Isaac. But there's another word, and, and it's the word laughing. He was laughing. Now, the King James and some other translations translate that as mockery or, or scorn, which aren't bad translations. That's likely what's being talked about here. He was, you, can, you can laugh for joy. You can laugh mockingly. He was laughing at the child. But the ESV is wise to translate it laughing because not only is that what the word literally is, but there's a very clear significance to that word laughing here in context. Why? Because Isaac name, Isaac's name means laughter. And so here Ishmael is represented as another Isaac, but a false Isaac. One who is not laughing with joy at God's plan of salvation, but one who laughs in threatening derision at the seed of the woman. And so we get these clues here to set this tension for us. And it's, it's always helpful when the Holy Spirit decides in the New Testament to write some commentary on the Old Testament for us to kind of fill in some of the lines and help us understand what's going on. And he does so about this story in Galatians 4. So in Galatians 4, Paul speaks of Hagar and Sarah as an allegory. And, and I won't go into the whole allegory, but it ends this way. This is Galatians 4, 28 through 29, speaking to the church in Galatia. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. And so the, the inspired author here, Paul, gives us clarity on two things. One, Sarah's response, again, while being unrighteous, was, was accurate. He uses that as a yes and amen, that that was what needed to happen. And at number two, we get clarity that Ishmael, in some sense, the language is persecution. He was persecuting the seed of promise. And so I'm not just being hard on Ishmael here. That's, that's what the apostle says, and you might say, but really, what, what could have Ishmael done to Isaac? So he's a young teenager, Isaac's a toddler, what, what really could have gone wrong? Well, to which I would respond, well, why don't you ask Abel how things go when you have the seed of promise target on your back and your brother is envious towards you? And so it doesn't take a stretch to understand why this tension was very real. And so one quick takeaway for us before we move on is as sons of Isaac, as Paul calls the church in Galatians 4, we must know the enemy will still try this old, tired tactic to try and discourage and to try to intimidate or oppress or muzzle or cancel Christians. And we must resist that. We must see the tactic, know what he's doing, and say, no, I, I will not fall prey to that. I, for instance, I know there are some in here even now whose companies are turning up the heat, turning up the heat on forced compliance with affirming the LGBTQ agenda. You will be tempted to cave in order to avoid derision or 
being fired. To which I'd say, stand resolved on the word of God. And you need to decide that now, not when you really come to the crucible. Or any other place where the pressure comes to compromise or to downplays or, or to, to soften or to apologize what Christ has said or what the gospel means as far as its exclusive claims. Do not cave. Stand firm. Stand tall. Stand in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are reviled or, or you are mocked, remember the command your Lord gives you then on how you're to respond. Luke 6, and 23, he says, Blessed are you. When people hate you and, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on, the count, on account of the Son of Man. Notice he doesn't say just generally for being a jerk. On account of the Son of Man. By saying Jesus is Lord and his word is true. He says rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Okay, so, so moving on in the text now, kind of a scene change. So Sarah tells Abraham to cast the slave woman and her son out. And Abraham, understandably, is, is torn up about this because he's Ishmael's natural father. So this is a sorrow to him. But the Lord has mercy on Abraham in his grief. The Lord sees Abraham in this tumult of soul, and he has mercy. He says, though Ishmael is not the son of promise, since he is your son, I will still make a great nation out of him. So this is not the end of Ishmael's story, Abraham. You let him go, and I will make a great nation. And so the, the next morning, in what must have been just an incredibly moving moment, Abraham loads up Hagar and, and Ishmael with some bare necessities for a few days, and, and he sends them off. And there's a phrase here that we'll also see in chapter 22, which is really worth noting. It's the phrase, Abraham rose early in the morning. And that's remarkable. Notice how quick Abraham's obedience to the Lord was, even when he did not feel like it. Even when it was very hard and very uncomfortable, he rose early in the morning. One of the things we want to impress upon our children as parents is, is that delayed obedience is disobedience. Waiting to obey when you feel like on your terms is not obedience, it is disobedience. And, and here again, Abraham is an example for us. Though he was grieved and, and though it was hard, as soon as the Lord told him what he must do, he rose early. To obey. Abraham knew, because he knew God, that there was always blessing on the other side of obedience. And so he obeyed quickly, even when it was very hard. And, and so Hagar and Ishmael, having been cast out of the covenant home, they, they now wander into the wilderness. And Hagar, for a second time now, she has been here before. And, and things quickly turn desperate as they get to the very last drop of water in the skin that Abraham had provided. And again, we are confronted with this heart-rending picture of, of Hagar compelling her teenage son to, to stay under a bush here, probably to shade him from the, the heat, while she went off, presumably saying goodbye to him, not wanting to see his suffering and 
And she starts to weep, and then she resigns herself to this impending death. And it's right here that something incredible happens. See, Hagar and Ishmael are in this place because Sarah heard Ishmael's voice, and it was a voice of mocking and laughter, and it got them cast out. But out here in the wilderness, Ishmael's voice is now heard again. But it's not the voice of laughter, and it's not heard by Sarah, but it's the voice of lament that was now heard by God. And the text says, God heard the voice of the boy. And now, if the first part of this text is dominated by Ishmael's mocking, we, we see a great sea change happen, and the text is now dominated by God's mercy. Because the Lord doesn't just hear them in their plights, but then the Lord also speaks to Hagar again. A voice from heaven tells her that she need not fear, but rather she is to run back to the boy and take hold of the boy because this is not the day of his demise. Rather, this is the day of his deliverance for them, that as Abraham was promised, he will become a great nation. He's not going to die. He's going to become a great nation. And at that moment, the Lord opens Hagar's eyes to see a well. He opens her eyes to see living water for her and her son. And so from there we see the boy growing, learning how to hunt, and he is given a wife and a land. That's how the text ends. All the building blocks of nation building Isaac or Ishmael now has. And there are two significant things said about Ishmael in the last verses. In verse 20, it says that the Lord was with him. And that's covenant language. The Lord was with him. This is what's said of Abraham, that the Lord was with him. This is what's said over and over about Joseph in Egypt. The Lord was with him. It emphasizes the blessing and presence of God. But the text also ends with Ishmael marrying an Egyptian, which again represents opposition to God. And, and so Ishmael, admittedly, is a complicated case in Scripture. And we simply don't know exactly where he stands in the story. Again, he was at enmity with Isaac, is rightly cast out from the covenant community. Paul calls him the child of the flesh, but then God miraculously delivers him and gives him a great nation. And yet we know that that nation will be opposed to the nation of Israel. And so this is not a neat and tidy resolution to Genesis 21. It leaves us with questions. However... Though the person of Ishmael is unclear and perhaps conflicted as far as we're concerned, there are some precious truths that God reveals about himself with absolute clarity, absolute clarity on the back half of this text. And especially so when you feel like you are in a wilderness and water is running low. And so in closing, I want to quickly highlight two takeaways from this. Two takeaways one, know again that the Lord always hears our pleas. And two, see again the well that he's already provided. So one, first, Christians must know again that the Lord always hears our pleas. 
The Lord always hears our pleas. Again, within the text, the reason God responded to Hagar was because he heard the voice of the boy. We have a listening God. We have the ear of the Almighty. If Ishmael had his ear, how much more for the sons of Isaac? The question is, do we fill it? Do we hourly and daily lay our fears and our needs at his feet? Or do we default to just chewing the cud of anxious worry? Or give in to the faithless resolve that just nothing will ever get better? I've said that my working definition of anxiety is this. Anxiety comes when we take on all of God's burdens with none of God's power. And that's what makes Hagar's case especially potent. She had a great reason to worry. <laughs> Didn't she not? She had a great reason to weep, humanly speaking. And that's what makes the angel's response initially a bit jarring. He says, what troubles you, Hagar? Like, duh, what troubles me? I'm out of water in a desert and we're about to die. <laughs> See, from a human perspective, it's pretty obvious why she ought to have been troubled. But then the angel continues and he says, fear not, for God has heard. It didn't make sense from a human perspective to not be troubled, but it made total sense from heaven's perspective not to. Because heaven knows that God hears and that he's God and that he does whatever he pleases to do. And one of the things he pleases to do is to always be working out the best possible good for the people that he loves and are called according to his purpose. Even in the wilderness, when the water is running low. So when you, when you feel that fear or worry start rumbling around, remember to preach to yourself what the angel preached to Hagar. What troubles you? Fear not, for the Lord has heard. And let us give something for God to hear. Let, let us pray without ceasing. Let us default more to intercession than to Instagram. And let us have the humility to ask for prayer from the saints as we have need, knowing that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the prayers of the saints have great power while it's working? Well, then let us ask. Let us humble ourselves and ask for prayer in our need. Spurgeon again helps us here. It has pleased God to make prayer the abounding and rejoicing river through which most of our choicest mercies shall flow. So saints of God, know again, the Lord always hears, always hears our pleas. Second and finally, see again. So the first one, know again, now see again the well that he's already provided. So Hagar is in the wilderness thinking she's going to die of thirst. And, and if we're recounting the story for somebody, we might be tempted to say, and then God provided a well for her. That's not exactly right. Look at the text again, verse 19. It says, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. 
And the implication being, the well was already there, but she didn't have eyes to see it until God opened them. And so while the first exhortation concerns our needs, that we should bring them to the Lord, and we should, but also let us be a people who have eyes that can see. Eyes of seeing that see the blessing of God all around us. That see the grace of God abounding all around us. For even with our needs, we are a bountiful and blessed people in the span of church history. Are we not? Surrounded by a thousand wells of grace and provision that are ours through Jesus Christ. If we have eyes to see it. Right now, we have the well of forgiveness of our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, we have the well of corporate worship, free from the fear of persecution or harassment. And where we do have physical or spiritual needs, we have the well of the body of Christ around us and with us to help bear our burdens with each other. So, dear Christians, Have eyes that see the wells of grace. Be alive afresh and be astonished by the grace of God towards you right now. Or do you have eyes that just default towards lack, where contentment is just always out of reach? If this one thing would be different, then I'd finally have peace. And that's not true. Because... If your problem is primarily found in a change of circumstance, it won't come. It will only be found in a change of eyes, where the Lord opens your eyes to see. This is the Apostle Paul in prison over and over again, abounding with rejoicing at how wonderful things are because of Christ. (laughs) And if that is you, if you default towards lack rather than seeing God's grace... Mr. Chesterton wants a word with you. He says this, You say grace before meals? All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I even dip the pen in the ink. This was a man who saw a well every time he looked anywhere. And that type of seeing is a Holy Spirit-empowered choice. So let us be a people who live lives of true gratitude. Let us be a people who live lives where we are looking through the lens of the gospel. And let us be a people who understand the everlasting joy that we are always moving further up and further into because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And our Lord and our God, we thank you.